0: actually enjoying that so much I'd hope they played one more. (laughs) Would you stand with me as we hear God's word this morning? We're going to be covering this passage over the next four Sundays in dealing with the meaning of Christmas and more importantly the the reason that in this season of Christmas we celebrate something that the world does not understand, but you do. And because you do, you have a reason to celebrate and rejoice. So I invite you now as you You would draw your attention to the word of God that you remember that these are words that are penned by someone who walked with Christ Jesus. This is not a stranger. This is someone who beheld his ministry, who walked among him, who saw his miracles, who beheld his glory. And he's penned these words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him he might, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone, uh, to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to those which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but, but born of God. And the Word became flesh This is the word of God. You may be seated. Is there something I'm doing wrong? No? We're good? It's my beard. It's tickling it, right? Um, one of the things that's really uh, uh, amazing to me in this time of year is how so often uh, the Christian th- the Christian faith is one of those things that... Uh, is really being challenged in our day, but particularly during the seasons of Easter and Christmas. So it's not surprising when you go into a grocery store, you will see articles <laughs> or magazines that ask the question, who is this man? And, and in this season, we have now Life magazine coming out with a publication called Who Do You Say I Am? Jesus. Uh, I haven't read through the magazine itself. I think uh, in many ways it was trying to be a fair treatment of a synopsis of the Christian faith. I don't think it's a hatchet job. But it does remind me that the season we are in now, the season of Advent, is a time where you and I really need to ask some serious questions. And one of the serious questions is, why do we believe in Jesus? Because the world wants to know still. There were many who have come before us who don't. They see him as an imposter or as a charlatan or or someone who was was simply leading a, a good endeavor. And it's just another religion that we practice like every other religion of the world. The problem with that kind of thinking about Christianity is it doesn't do it justice. And for those of you who might be here who are not Christians and you don't honestly investigate the claims of Christ, you can only, you can only blame yourself for your ignorance. Because in all honesty, there is plenty of evidence that you could look at and say to yourself, I can make a judgment and that judgment's based upon what I have discovered. There have been many people who have approached Christianity with great hesitation or with complete unbelief, and they have come away believing. One of the most modern examples is a man named Lee Strobel. Have you heard of him? He worked for the New York Times. He was a a journalist. He was a skeptic. And so as he began to think about Christianity, it came home that something he had to face because his wife was converted to Christian faith. And he thought his marriage was over. And the most amazing story comes in how he, through his keen investigative mind, wanted to disprove the Christian claim. And in so doing, he became a believer. This morning, one of the things that I want to point out to you who do believe is that we do not believe fairy tales, or cleverly devised stories. We are, we are really talking about something that, trans, that transcends our understanding but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. We're talking about the birth of the Son of God. Now for those who are Jewish that's a complete insult because there's this firm conviction that God can never be a man. The same is true for the Muslim. For anyone in those groups to believe that God became human is completely an anathema of what they believe to be the truth. But John records for us something quite amazing. He says that this Jesus, this Jesus is the living God present among us. I don't know if that insults you. I hope it doesn't. I hope it challenges you to think clearly and deeply about what it is that Christ claims for Himself Because in the words of Josh McDowell, who wrote the book, More Than a Carpenter, Jesus can only be one of three people. In all the claims he made, he can only be either a liar, a lunatic, or the Messiah he claims to be. Those are the choices. And throughout the ages, men and women like you and me have made decisions as to one of those categories that we have placed Jesus. This morning, I want to Talk with you a little bit about what does it mean to live the Christian life in our culture because we're seeing a shift in our culture in such ways that you and I as believers need to realize that, that in our faith, as we live it out in our culture, people are looking at you and they're asking, why do you believe in Jesus? And so this morning, as we start this series, one of the things I'd like to do is talk about the importance of the scriptures. And why it is that scriptures are the only thing that we can use to s- to support and encourage and build up our faith in what it is that we believe during this season. And to pass that on to our children and grandchildren as well. So let me start by telling you a story, a fishing story. Don't you love fishing stories? In South Carolina, when we would go fishing in Black Creek, we would use a flat-bottom boor- boat It was thinner than a John boat by half. It was longer by two feet, and you always had one person paddling and the other person fishing. And so if you were going to go fishing, you always wanted to find someone who was a good paddler because in that current, you had to have someone who could maneuver that boat in such a way that the swift current would always be manageable by that person who could keep the boat still, especially as you found a sweet spot. You know what I'm talking about? That fishing hole where the fish were. And so one of the things growing up you realized was that, that most men who had sons made sure that their sons knew how to paddle so that they could do the fishing. And that's what it was in our family that we learned how to paddle before we ever could hold a fishing rod or fishing pole in our hands. But one of the things I've always wondered was, why in the world we didn't just have an anchor. <laughs> it would have been so much nicer, right? You, you can drift down Black Creek with the current or you can paddle upstream, but once you get one of two directions and you find that sweet spot, that's where you want to stop. And the most amazing thing was in that creek boat, the flat-bottom creek boat, you would never find an anchor. And it bothered me because it seemed that... When you found the right thing or the right place to be, you had to really work hard to stay there. And I think back, that's exactly what it means to live the Christian life today. It takes a lot of effort to represent our faith to this world. It takes a lot of effort to keep ourselves centered on what's important. I can tell you as I walk through the grocery stores and and the different places of sale, I don't see Jesus represented. Do you? And I think it's intentional. I think it's intentional because Christmas for our culture is a time of joy and celebration and drinking and partying. But it's just to have fun because they want to drown out the sorrows of the world was at a party this past month, and as I was at that party, I met some people who I just loved and came to love deeply, but I knew they were not of the faith of Christ. And I could see in their eyes, as they were trying to have a good time, there were things that bothered them, unresolved things in their lives. I wanted to pull out the three circles for those of you who've taken that class. Almost did, one time. But the most amazing thing for you and for me is that the times we live in are not unique. We feel that way, but they're not. Why? When John wrote his gospel, one of the things that he talks about is how he was living in a time when the culture of his day was in great confusion. There was first spiritual confusion There were all kinds of worship centers, temples, places that people gathered to call upon some either known or unknown idol. Whether they named the the god or they didn't have a name for the god, they would gather to pray. As as archaeologists uncover some of these places that people worshipped to the various gods, idols of their day, they would actually find, wrapped up in the city of Corinth prayers that were in scrolls that were, that were put into the cracks to praying to this deity that they might have children or that they might have blessing or their crops might be fruitful or their business might be prospering. They had prayers just like you and I would pray, but they were praying to stone idols. And when their prayers were not being answered or where things happened, they began to wonder, is God really there? Is this God really care? Does this God or goddess care about me? And throughout the ages, whether it was the Greek culture that encompassed the world or the Roman culture that conquered and later encompassed the known world, everyone had their own gods but no one long no longer believed in them. The spiritual climate had de-evolved to the place where even the Caesars who ruled the Roman Empire declared themselves to be God. And everyone knew the only reason you called him God was because if you didn't, you were beheaded or crucified. The spiritual confusion was rampant. Would you say that's the case today? The second thing that was going on in that time was moral deterioration. Though the Roman culture of that day in John's, di- in John's life believed in the family that you married a woman to have legitimate children, there was no hindrance for any man to live any way he wanted, to visit any brothel or any place of disrepute for the purpose of enjoying sensual pleasure, The Romans were notorious for their sensual seeking of pleasure in all facets of life. But in all of that seeking, they never, ever found what they could say was satisfying them. And what was worse, the culture deteriorated as they did this lifestyle. Does that sound familiar? The third thing that was going on during John's day was that there was a hunger for decency and justice. That there were people who were seeing what was happening around them and they, they inside of their heart knew that this was not the way life was supposed to be. But they had no answer because there was spiritual confusion. Who do we look to for what is true, what is right? How do we determine the way in which we are to live? And more importantly, how do we raise a family? in this kind of culture? How do we raise our children so that they understand what is decent and what is just? And though the Roman world was filled with all kinds of immorality, it was also a culture that was filled with laws. And so there was this dualism of sensuality going on along with a desire for some kind of order, some kind of understanding of how our lives are supposed to be lived. And so in the multiplicity of this spiritual confusion and moral deterioration and hunger for decency and justice. Along the, the generations that came through that time, there were first the Greek Stoics who, who, looking at their lives and their worlds, they began to say there must be something greater than what we see. And they called it something like the Logos. And they said this, this reason, this reason, whatever it is that makes sense of the world, it is a principle that we are to live by. And as they began to think about this and look at their lives and compare their, the ways in which the cultures had risen and fall, they began to realize that within each human being is this sense that there's something better, something good, something right, but we don't know what it is. And so they just called it reason. A second group, and, and by the way, I'm being very brief, this is very short. This is, not, this is not even the cliff notes of the, of the philosophy of that day. <laughs> the second group was the, the group that really was influenced by Plato and Philo, who was Jewish, was influenced by the Platonic thinking of way of life. And, and in, that, in that whole way of thinking, the, the idea was that there really is an ideal world. There is someplace, somewhere Kind of sounds like a song from a Disney movie. Someplace, somewhere that's beautiful, that's wonderful, that that has has a life where it makes sense that things are not like they are in this life. And so this ideal world was something that the heart longs for. They called it the reason or the logos, the word. And and they, they look for trying to understand what this ideal world would be like living in a what they term to be a real world meaning the real world as it is now which is only a copy of vague copy of what the ideal world is. I remember watching MTV in my younger years I, I hate to admit that to you um, but I remember when the program came out the real world you remember that? And I thought to myself, okay, this is going to be the real world. This was this was when our culture moved to the entertainment of reality TV. <laughs> Remember that? Reality TV. And so the real world started out with what? They took these bunch of hormone-induced teenagers and put them all in a place with no boundaries. They all lived together. They shared the same bathroom. They, they, they basically lived without Blinders or boundaries. And they said, This is the real world. And of course, what were they wanting? They wanted conflict so they could televise on TV. Now, that's always kind of made me question what's going on in our world because when you look at our media, everything is about drama, isn't it? You can't watch a TV program without a conflict and drama. We're drawn to it like a moth to the flame but we're also people who recognize we don't want to have the drama in our lives. We love being entertained by the drama in someone else's life, right? And there's the dissonance. Well, the Platonic idea was that surely there must be something that is a higher good that, that is ideal. And so it influenced Roman thinking, Greek thinking of those days. It later, after, and maybe before and after Christianity, there was a movement called Gnosticism. It was something the church fought against in that day because it was a false teaching that talked about the idea from the philosophers that the flesh is evil. The world is evil. The spirit is good. And so there were... Epicureans, they were the people who said, well, if that's true, then eat, drink, and be merry because what? Tomorrow Tomorrow you die. And you see that in our culture today, don't you? And so the amazing part about all of this is that from these kinds of philosophies, people came up with a worldview that guided them on trying to make sense of their life. And that's exactly what is happening with your friends today. And it's happening with you. And in the midst of that sea of uncertainty, the world is crying out, where is the anchor? What is it that anchors us? What is it that lets us know what is right, what is ideal, what is true? The only problem with this is in the last three generations that we've seen grow up around us, maybe your children, your grandchildren, They have grown up in a world view that basically says there is no truth any longer. There is no right or wrong. And because of that, whatever you think is right is right for you. You hear it in phrases like, well, if that's your truth but not my truth. What's the problem with that? Well, it it gravitates toward the idea that there is a truth but it never tells you how you can discover it or where you can look to to find it. This is why John felt important to write his gospel because he begins by reading it in this way, in the beginning was the word. That word logos can mean either word or reason, and it speaks about that one, that source where we understand what it is that makes life work, what makes life worth living. And the most amazing thing is he, John, writing his gospel, takes that concept which is scattered through his culture and he says to them, what you have been looking for came into the world and he became like us. Isn't that glorious? Now, this is one of, admittedly, one of the great miracles of Christ and his life. We think of him healing the lame or or making the blind to see. No, no. The, the miracle is that what John tells us is that God knowing us and needing to reveal himself to us. Revealed himself completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, you can go further and look at John as we study it, but when you begin to look deeply into the scriptures, you'll find that all the things that John talks about go back to Genesis. In the beginning, what is he saying? Before anything was created, God existed. And he spoke. And when he spoke, things were created. Well, John is saying that that little expression where God spoke, that is who Christ is. He was with the Father in glory. And in that moment that he became human, he became like us without losing his divinity. Paul writes about this in in the book of Colossians, in the letter to the Colossians, who, by the way, the Colossians were people who were, bathed in this philosophies that we talked about. And when they heard the gospel, they found it so mor- well, so freeing, so glorious to hear about how God had revealed himself because everyone was searching for God, but who could find him except that God would reveal himself? Paul writes it in the first chapter of this, that this Jesus is the son of the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Not being that he was created, but he was before creation. He primarily, in first order, was the one through whom all creation was made. Here is the context. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a person who goes back and tries to think deeply about the cosmos or even, even the biology that, that is now being taught in schools, but one of the things I remember, especially in chemistry, was how we were talking about in those days which may have been when the dinosaurs ruled, uh, in those days that when you looked at the atom, there was a nucleus and electrons that went around the atom. This was the theory of how matter exists. The one thing they could not tell us and still do not know to this day is how does that atom stay together together? If the electrons are negatively charged and the nucleus is, is positively charged and the electrons circle the neutron like the planets circle the earth, then how does the human body possibly continue to exist? Well, Paul says that Jesus is the one who holds all creation together. Why? Because he is God. The most astounding thing is this the baby that was born in the manger was not some prophet He wasn't some good teacher. I mean, I've always thought that was a cop-out to call Jesus a good teacher, by the way. Do you know why? He couldn't be a good teacher if he lied about who he is. When John writes this, he wants us to understand that what we celebrate in Christmas is that in Jesus Christ, God has taken away the mystery of of who he is, because he has revealed himself through his son Jesus, and that son Jesus is the very expression that was in the creation of the world, where God said and it was so, God spoke and it was so. Jesus was through the it was, Jesus was the one through whom creation was made. He was cre- He was the one who not only created it; he was created for him. And the most amazing part of the scriptures is it says that he left that divinity and became like us in every way except without sin. When you and I begin to think about this logos, John puts it this way. He says, listen to me very carefully. That ideal of whatever is good in your heart, that there's something better, there's something true, There's something right, and you know it's elusive. It's not something humanity has been able to grasp and hold on to. That idea is a person, and his name is Jesus. He existed eternally before time and space. He says, secondly, he was with God. I I know that some of you may have been approached by people called Jehovah's Witnesses. Have you been talking with them? They use what is called the New Translation Bible. It's a horrible translation of the original Greek and Hebrew. It is not a translation. Because in their translation it reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's not what it says. The, The Greek literally speaks about the fact that this person, Jesus, who is the one through whom all things were created, was distinct from God the Father, but was also God at the same time. And more importantly, John says, this Jesus is God. And so as, you are, as a Christian, when you think about walking before people who don't believe, when you think about the people in our world who are going to parties and wrapping presents and, and decorating their homes, they are they're really looking for who? God. They're looking for the one who can make sense of their life. They're looking for the one who can help them understand why their lives are broken and how they can find solutions. And John says the the thing or the ideal or what they really long for and they don't know it is Jesus. That changes the whole way you look at people, doesn't it? I was walking through the the grocery store this past week, and as I was walking, I was looking at people and wondering to myself, I I wonder if they've come to know the love of Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that John later in the gospel says this is eternal life, that you come to know the one true God and the one he has sent. This is the joy of Christmas. It's not in the gifts we receive. It's not really in the food we eat. It's not in the decorations we set out. The real joy of Christmas is coming to know the forgiveness that God gives through Jesus Christ and rejoicing in him. Because as we'll find out later in this passage, God did not come because we were good people or because we were born in the right family or because we were Presbyterians. (laughs) God, God came because he knew our sin and he knew that we would never be able to deliver ourselves from the penalty we deserved as we would stand before God in the day of judgment. Never. Because of his great love, he sent Christ to you. Wouldn't it be wonderful this Christmas if you could rediscover who this Jesus really is? How much he really loves you? And the fact that Advent we celebrate not that he came as a child only, but that he promised he will come again And let me tell you, when he comes again, there will not be a war in Gaza or Ukraine. There will no longer be a war in our hearts with our families. And most amazingly, you will be finally delivered from the war in your own heart where you feel the duplicity in your struggle with sin. Because what he's done through the cross is redeemed you and cleansed you so that now you can have a relationship with God the Father. But when he comes again, he will remove evil once and for all from the world. I remember when I was at the military college at the Citadel, I had a letter from someone who wrote to me and said, you know, I'm wondering if we're living in the last days. Because I I hope Jesus doesn't come back tomorrow. I'd like to grow up and get married and have children. I'd like to have a job and experience some things before the Lord comes back. And I thought to myself, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, come quickly, but let me enjoy the 25th of December first, right? (laughs) Jesus... Come quickly, but uh, let me make sure I get that promotion and I'm able to buy that boat or that truck or that tractor or whatever I want to get just before you come, Lord. As if those things would be better than being delivered from evil? No. No, as you get to know this baby that was born in the manger, it's not just a baby, it is God incarnate the one who came to deliver this world from what is really bad. that came to deliver you from those things you don't want other people knowing about you and cleansing you and making you pure and holy and good. That's why we says let's pray together. Our gracious God and our Father, as we think about that in the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth, and you said they are good. And it was so good. But then we find out in the second chapter that the reason the world is not what you intended in creation is because of our sin And the glory of Christmas is just as sin entered the world through one man. So now salvation and righteousness and redemption has come through Jesus Christ. For this we give you thanks. Stir our hearts to look deeply into this time of season that we might know that truth. That one, that person, Jesus, who has Revealed God the Father to us, who has now been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of God the Father. And he will come to judge the quick and the dead. To the glory of God the Father, we pray. The people of God said together,